Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh. I am joined today by my good friend, colleague, and podcaster extraordinaire, Dr. Ryan Shields, who's an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Ryan, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, Erin. How's my sound today? You sound phenomenal, Ryan. I got to say, I was in my office this morning. As you know, we've recently moved offices, and I have this ginormous fan right behind me that's been blowing in my face for the last year. I finally got the courage today to get some paper clips out, some ink pens. I MacGyvered this thing and turned the fan off just for this podcast. Ryan, your dedication to SIDP and breakpoints is, is unlimited, really. We appreciate your efforts. <laughs> Ryan and I used to record this podcast in a studio on Pitt's campus, which has, of course, been closed since COVID-19. So we've had to get a little creative with ensuring Ryan had a setup to podcast today. But that brings us to COVID-19. And, and I'll admit, I don't think Ryan or myself or, or a lot of our colleagues around the country have really done anything outside of the COVID-19 space since the start of 2020, really, and when this pandemic hit. Um, there's an overwhelming amount of data and evolving clinical care in that space. And that's taken a lot of our time, effort, and focus, and not only in infectious diseases, but critical care and so many of our other colleagues. But that doesn't mean that there's no other science happening. And I know that I personally missed all of the other notable publications in the infectious diseases space this year. Yeah, I think, Aaron, it's important we address the elephant in the room with COVID-19 that's affected every single one of our listeners and ourselves included. And our job now is to address that elephant and kick it right out of the room so we can focus on some of the literature that may have been missed. Hopefully we can be entertaining and also share some insights with some of the new articles that have been published while we're all focusing on COVID. Yeah, so for our loyal Breakpoints listeners that may be in the same boat as us, our goal over the next two episodes is to discuss the important infectious diseases publications from the first half of 2020 that impact your practice, but you may have missed while you were just drinking from this fire hose of COVID-19 literature and data. Uh, we also want to point out that our listeners can obtain BCIDP credit for this podcast if you are a board-certified pharmacist. So you can find information on how to get your BCIDP credit by going to the SIDP website. Yeah, Aaron, speaking of SIDP, I think it's important that we acknowledge how SIDP has absolutely been crushing it during COVID-19 and all the new information the committee has been putting out, including from yourself and many of our, our listeners and our president, Jason Pogue. It's just been phenomenal to see the way SIDP has reacted to this virus. And I promise that's the last time we'll mention COVID-19. I also want to give one small shout out to Steve Smoke, who I know does the music for this podcast and I had an opportunity to kind of interact with and work on a project with recently. So not only is he a talented musician, but a pretty cool dude to go with it. So let's get this thing started. And I can't think of any better place to start a literature review than vancomycin guidelines. So Aaron, lead us in. Oh yes, Ryan, you know we have to start with the final publication of the 2020 vancomycin guidelines. These were published on May 19th in the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy after over a year of anticipation. I think these were first published for public comment on ASHP's website in, I think, March of 2019. So we knew they were coming, but they're finally here and we have to talk about them because who doesn't love Banco? You know, I used to think we spent the most time on Banco, but now it's definitely remdesivir, which I blew it. <laughs> I blew it. I mentioned COVID. I'm sorry. Okay, but back to... The Venco guidelines finally published. There's also executive summaries of these guidelines published in Pharmacotherapy, CID, and the Journal of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society because these guidelines are sponsored by several societies, including SIDP. 
So very, very exciting. Also exciting that they include pediatrics and adults. So there's recommendations for peds in there. And these guidelines feature seven SIDP member authors, including lead author, Dr. Mike Ryback. And this is going to be a major focus for most stewardship programs and pharmacy departments over the coming year or two. And so to start considering this transition, let's tell our listeners what they need to know from these guidelines. First and foremost, these guidelines are only for serious, suspected, or confirmed MRSA infection. And that includes meningitis. So meningitis is mentioned in here and, and grouped together with other serious MRSA infections. But the authors state at this time there's insufficient evidence to provide recommendations on non-invasive MRSA or non-MRSA infections. So what if you're using Vanco for enterococcal infections? These, these guidelines do not technically apply to that. For patients with serious suspected or confirmed MRSA, your dosing target is an AUC or area under the curve to MIC or minimum inhibitory concentration. The ratio of 400 to 600 is what we need to achieve for clinical efficacy and to improve patient safety. So that means troughs of 15 to 20 are no longer recommended because we know troughs correlate poorly with AUC and aiming for a 15 to 20 was resulting in unnecessarily high exposures and more nephrotoxicity. The guidelines also say to assume the MIC is one, and this is based on national vancomycin susceptibility surveillance data. So just thousands and thousands of staph isolates where susceptibilities were performed with broth microdilution, which is of course the gold standard testing method. So if you're using AUC dosing and you have a staph isolate and the MIC is legitimately two, like two via broth microdilution, then you cannot technically dose Vanco safely because then you would need an AUC of 800 to get that 400 ratio. And then your patient would be at risk of nephrotoxicity with those higher exposures. And on, on the flip of that, if your MIC is less than one, the authors say don't decrease the AUC target. So in other words, if your MIC is 0.5, we wouldn't be dosing to aim for a 200 because as we know, MICs are imperfect measures and the testing methods for staff are, are imperfect and very variable, whether it's e-test or microscan or, or whatever you're using. And so really, unless you're setting up broth, which most of us are not, because it's, it's really not worth the, the micro lab resources to do so, you can just assume the MIC is one, your dosing target is 400 to 600. And if your patient isn't getting better, you need to just switch drugs. There's no other way to dose around this. The authors highlight the importance too of early appropriate therapy. And so they actually recommend that the target exposure be achieved as soon as possible, preferably within 24 to 48 hours. Now, this is absolutely true for critically ill patients, but this has to be weighed practically against who you're monitoring. And so again, I'll say at UPMC, we, we don't recommend first dose levels routinely. We recommend checking our two AUC levels once the patients hit steady state. So really after the fourth dose or whatnot, because honestly, most patients that get started on Vanco don't need it, and we'd rather just discontinue Vanco at 48 hours than check two levels in every single patient. I think then you're, you're just checking way more levels than you really need. But if we have a critically ill patient, a patient in septic shock, or a patient transferring with known bacteremia, then we absolutely do suggest two levels after that first dose. And then some other key recommendations in this document include giving preference to drawing two samples. So when you're transitioning to AUC dosing, two samples really is preferred. If you have Bayesian software, you can maybe get away with one, but again, it's only as good as your prior and how well does that prior model fit your patient population. They do suggest continuous infusions are a reasonable dosing alternative. They say we should use clinical judgment when judging the frequency of how often you should perform TDM in patients, and so that's going to be something your institution will have to decide and how often 
And they do make a recommendation. You can consider giving loading doses, 20 to 35 mg per kg in critically ill patients, but they don't say loading doses are mandatory, just a, a consideration. Yeah, great overview, Aaron. And I think Vanco's probably caught some attention from our listeners here uh, that may or may not have something to do with dosing it. And so a really nice follow-up editorial by SIDP colleague Mark Sheets. It was entitled Vancomycin, The Pendulum Swings. And Mark did a really nice job of giving some historical significance to vancomycin. I think we've all seen those slides that have the old bottles of Mississippi mud on them. But I think he makes two really important points in this editorial. One of which is that vancomycin dosing and therapeutic drug monitoring is perhaps really the first and maybe one of the best examples of precision medicine which has really paralleled the rise of the clinical pharmacist in really taking ownership and and expanding PKPD into clinical practice. And I really like the way that Mark puts this together. And, you know, I'm old enough now when I was going through residency, every single journal club was about MRSA and vancomycin creep. And we started shifting that pendulum to giving more and more vancomycin. And now we're seeing that pendulum kind of swing back down. So I I love the parallels that Dr. Sheets draws here between precision medicine and the rise of the clinical pharmacists that have really been revolutionary implementation pieces into clinical practice the last couple of decades. The second point that I think is really important and it's our job to underscore is that dosing vancomycin correctly has to go hand in hand with vancomycin stewardship. This has been a big point for us at UPMC and we've kind of taken the stance that any pharmacist, whoever you are, if you're dosing vancomycin, you have to understand and acknowledge when vancomycin benefits your patient and when it doesn't. I think Dr. Sheets makes a really great quote here, and I'll quote from his paper. Zero is the correct PK exposure for a patient who will not benefit clinically from vancomycin. And no truer words have been spoken in speaking of vancomycin because we know there's lots of opportunities to stop vancomycin early in patients with rapid diagnostics. Maybe it's MRSA NARI screens or other measures. And then there's certainly opportunities to avoid vancomycin altogether in patients that just aren't going to benefit from it. So some really important points here from Dr. Sheets, and I encourage all of our listeners to go read his editorial for both the historic significance of vancomycin and then some of these subtle points about where we're at as a field and specialty with clinical pharmacy. Yeah, I love that quote so much, and I see it on so many slide decks and so many talks in the future, just white background, black text, and just that quote about zero is the correct PK exposure. The other neat thing I learned in reading Mark's editorial is that I, all my years in infectious diseases, I had no idea that Vanco was named for the, quote, ability to vanquish staph with cocci, end quote. I was like, oh, how about that? I've been in clinical practice longer, and I similarly had no idea. So it goes to show you, you learn something new every day. Yeah, that was so neat. I was like, well, this is a fun trivia fact for my (laughs) nerd soul, because I talk about Vanco during trivia. There you go. No comments on your nerd soul. So Aaron, let's get to some of the practical considerations of these guidelines. And and I want to hearken to your experience in in getting this up and running at UPMC. You've trained a lot of people, including pharmacists and non-pharmacists, nurses, physicians, on how to implement AUC dosing. So what's a piece of advice you may have for our listeners about training with vancomycin AUC dosing and how you implement this practically? Yeah, Ryan, I guess the first thing is that I didn't do it, a whole team did it. And that's that's my first advice is that if you are the only pharmacist at your institution that covers stewardship or is responsible for infectious diseases roles, would strongly recommend you find a critical care friend or an internal medicine friend or someone who's interested in advancing pharmacy practice really and, and, and working on this project with you, but you need a team. It's a huge, huge lift. 
I had a, a really amazing team and you and several of our other ID pharmacist colleagues that helped with this. So, and then get leadership support. This is going to be a lot of your time and effort. So your boss, your boss's boss, they need to know that this is what you're working on. They need to support it. They need to be behind you training all of your staff and all, all the medical staff and everyone. And then just train everyone. I mean, that's our other advice. We, we did training over three months. We started with in-person classroom sessions. I, whoa, in-person training. I can't, I miss doing that. So you'll have to get creative in COVID times on how you're going to be able to train people. But we started with classroom sessions with cases, talking through a dialysis case, a renal replacement case, an AUC case, a trough-based case, et cetera. Then we did operational type training, how people are going to sign out consults, how they're going to discontinue consults, what handoff is going to look like, how we are going to divide consults amongst teams, et cetera. So we had multiple training sessions, multiple times for feedback. We met with people in person repeatedly. This takes a lot of time. We went to every nursing unit to talk to every nurse, as many medical resident sessions as we could get into. So give yourself a lot of time to prepare people and be willing and ready to go to a lot of different venues and on all shifts. So you're going to have to strategically think about how you're going to hit your overnight shift, how you're going to hit your evening shift, and when you're going to meet with, with those important colleagues as well. I really strongly feel that every pharmacist can and should dose vancomycin. That works at an inpatient setting. So I would advocate to train everyone, including your overnight, your cross cover, all of that, because then they can help really support the program and patient care is consistent throughout every minute of the day. Yeah, that, that's great advice, Erin. And I think some of those practical considerations are as important as getting the right PK target. So I want to comment on one other part of the guidelines that was left a bit open-ended and a common place where vancomycin gets used, and that's complicated skin and soft tissue infections, which there really wasn't a ton of data to advocate for AUC-based dosing. But recently, Dr. Ryback's group, led by Sarah Alassami and colleagues, published a paper in Clinical Infectious Diseases to get at this specific point. Is vancomycin AUC-based dosing helpful in MRSA skin and soft tissue infections? So you'll find this in clinical infectious diseases, and this is a retrospective study at the Detroit Medical Center where they identified patients specifically with MRSA, skin and soft tissue infections, who received at least 72 hours of vancomycin and it had at least one trough concentration measured. Now, what they did for these trough concentrations is they used Bayesian software with ADAPT in a published two-compartment POP-PK model to estimate what the AUCs would be. In terms of the actual infections, they did per a pretty nice job carefully defining these, and their primary outcome of this study was timely clinical success, which was defined as resolution of signs and symptoms of infection within 72 hours, which included things like improvement in healing, lesion size, and no alternative agents for failure or toxicity. I've always wondered how to do these kinds of studies retrospectively, but I suppose one of the secrets is having an army of really well-educated and ambitious fellows to, to do this. And I think this is one of the, the keys to success in, in this paper specifically, is really getting into those paper charts and figuring out what were the resolution of skin and soft tissue infections. But the major take-home point here, not surprisingly, is if you hit your AUC targets and they defined an AUC target of 435 based on CART analysis, you see an improvement in clinical signs and symptoms of infection and higher rates of timely clinical success. Now, one of the other nuances of this paper I want to point out is when you look at the patients who either failed or had success, 
the median predicted AUC was 452 in those with success and 415 with those in failure. So there's a pretty narrow margin or delta here where you're going to draw your AUC line. It's not surprising that the CART analysis kind of split that difference and said you have to hit an AUC of 435. It's not to say that an AUC of 420 would fail necessarily. I think this paper mostly just underscores that. But Aaron, we know that managing skin and soft tissue infections is a bit different than invasive infections with bacteremia or endocarditis where you're anticipating long durations of vancomycin. Here with skin and soft tissue, we may anticipate shorter durations and we have alternative agents. So let me ask you, is AUC dosing worth it in skin and soft tissue infections? Yeah, Ryan, when we rolled out our UPMC protocol, we actually did not include skin and soft tissue infections in AUC dosing. We said you could aim for a trough of 10 to 15. This was largely from some data about how you could get away with, with flat dosing in skin and soft tissue infections. And then also just our general thought that hopefully these patients won't need monitoring at all. They'll transition to oral therapy. I'll tell you that backfired somewhat when you start to operationalize this because skin and soft tissue infection is super nebulous in clinical practice. We had surgical site infections being miscategorized. We had skin and soft tissue infections that are actually really quite serious with deep invasive abscesses. And so it gets a little blurred. And at the end of the day, some patients are continued on vancomycin therapy. And if you have a patient who's being treated definitively with vanco, I think they should be AUC dosed. And so I think this is something we're going to reevaluate at our center. We tried to use AUC dosing as this like, well, maybe they should be on oral doxycycline. And that's, that's a, a little confusing and not really appropriate, I guess. So I think our stewardship document now that we have is separate on how to de-escalate. But I think if you're on Vanco, you should AUC dose. So we're actually having conversations to update our protocol to transition pretty much every indication to AUC dosing rather than trying to delineate that out. So and that includes CNS infections, SSTI, et cetera. Yeah, that's great advice, Aaron, and I think some really important practical considerations. So on that note, let's shift gears to another topic that really generated some buzz, non-COVID buzz, I should say, and that's an IDSA position paper that came out specifically commenting on the SEP1 core measure. And for context here, the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, implemented, as we all know, this core measure known as SEP1 in October 2015 for both severe sepsis and septic shock. And really what this is, is it required hospitals to report their compliance with a very rigidly defined measure as part of their inpatient quality reporting program, and these data are made publicly available. Now, the first thing to notice about these core measures is that this is an all or nothing measure. So you have to meet each of the criteria in order to say that you've met the measure or you have not. So even one or two of the aspects doesn't count. So the major highlights, just to remind everyone of the SEP1 bundle, they include from time zero of patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, within three hours, centers must measure a serum lactate. And if that lactate is elevated greater than two, you must repeat it within six hours. You must obtain blood cultures prior to antibiotics and administer antibiotics within three hours. Now for patients specifically with septic shock, you have to initiate fluid resuscitation with 30 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid fluids. And importantly, these same criteria apply to both severe sepsis and septic shock. So the IDSA point out a paper in clinical infectious diseases in May of this year saying, well, wait a minute, there's some significant practical limitations of these measures. And we have some major concerns about how these measures can be implemented in clinical practice. So to summarize what the IDSA concerns are, is that number one, and probably most importantly, 
is that there's a very high rate of sepsis overdiagnosis that leads to really a rush in clinical judgment by using these measures. And we've seen this practically in firsthand as well, is that clinicians are very much aware of these measures. They want to implement antibiotics as soon as they can, but there's also other diagnostic tests that could be performed. And we know, of course, by rushing to this diagnosis of sepsis, this could potentially lead to an overtreatment of sepsis, particularly including antibiotics for non-infectious syndromes. And we know, of course, antibiotic overprescribing has all sorts of collateral damage that can result from that. So the IDSA then is said, well, maybe we need to encourage some flexibility in this initial diagnosis. And they point to some important examples of where this has happened before, specifically the CMS measure in 2002 for pneumonia, which we know led to overdiagnosis of pneumonia and overuse of antibiotics. The other important thing that the IDSA points out is that sepsis and septic shock are different. And actually, the, much of the literature derived from time to first dose of antibiotic comes from septic shock. And it's maybe an extension to apply those same principles to severe sepsis. So there's some nuances there. Moreover, many of those data are observational in nature and don't take into account some important confounders like severity of illness, what types of signs and symptoms the patients present with, was their antibiotic choice appropriate, and do they have source control? And I think these are other things that we'll continue to see built into these measures moving forward. The second important point that IDSA addresses as a major concern is the definition of time zero. As the definition is defined now, it's both complex, subjective, and not evidence-based. And as you know, it includes combinations of a physician diagnosis, as well as the SERS criteria, which can be somewhat subjective in defining those specifically and defining those in real time. The time zero is very, very important because that starts the clock on this three-hour window in which you need to meet all of these core measures. The final concern IDSA highlights is mandating lactate measurement, which I think we can all agree may have some prognostic significance, but the literature to support it and support measuring lactate and correlating it to clinical outcomes is a bit sparse. So given these concerns, the IDSA provided some recommendations to improve the core measures from CMS. The first important suggestion from IDSA is to eliminate severe sepsis from this measure altogether, not only given the diagnostic uncertainty, but the fact that there's weaker evidence to support including severe sepsis in the same bucket as septic shock. And if you then just have your measure focused around septic shock, it's a bit easier to define. For instance, maybe there is a blood pressure threshold that defines septic shock or patients that are refractory to fluid resuscitation can make the definition a little bit easier. And that goes hand in hand then with defining time zero a little bit more objectively and clearer. So if you just focus on septic shock, you could include some more objective measurements of time zero. And if you have then a good objective way of defining time zero, you could perhaps even shorten this window from three hours down to one hour, because we know in the setting of septic shock, every hour matters. And so IDSA has taken the stance. There's some other things that IDSA has suggested, one of which is to eliminate measurement of serum lactate, given that it's nonspecific for infection. And the other thing that IDSA recommends is that SEP1 should require hospitals to report time intervals. One of the important things when you start a clock on a measure like this are all the practical considerations of the delivery of antibiotics, when the nurse hangs the antibiotics, and operationalizing this early rapid care. 
And something I've always wondered about is, you know, what happens for the patient that before they present to the emergency department? You can certainly envision there's some patients that are sitting at home and they're going to tough it out. And there's other patients that are going to be very quick to respond and, and present to acute care. And all of that confounding before presentation isn't really accounted for either. So IDSA has kind of made these statements. And of course, quickly, there was some initial responses, Aaron. Absolutely, there were, Ryan. So two other key publications we're going to talk about because sepsis will continue to be quite the clinical controversy. So the first publication was in pharmacotherapy. It was the response paper from the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. So this was a commentary on the IDSA's recommended revisions to SEP1. And really, I think the key point from this paper, and I'm going to actually quote it directly, so they said the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists believes the current evidence supports timely administration of antibiotics in patients with severe sepsis as an urgent priority and that stewardship programs should prioritize minimizing time to appropriate therapy in these patients. However, because severe sepsis is a more nebulous definition and many syndromes mimic this presentation, we agree this metric is unsuitable for a core measure bundle. So, no one's arguing that patients with sepsis, so remember, sepsis is infection plus criteria, right? So no one's arguing that infected patients should get antibiotics as fast as possible and that giving timely antibiotics is extremely important. But they're just saying, you know, we're not so good at this whole sepsis diagnosis thing at the initial point of care because it's incredibly difficult to nail down the exact diagnosis right as a patient presents with a myriad and constellation of symptoms. And so because of this, because clinical decision-making and diagnosing is a nuanced art in science, they just said sepsis shouldn't be mandatory. It shouldn't be a core measure. It's not that we don't think timely antibiotics are absolutely appropriate. But severe sepsis, or, but I, I apologize, but septic shock, see, it's confusing even when you try to talk about it. Yes, it is. Septic shock, though, that's obviously a no-brainer. Like when you start pressors and antibiotics, no question, that should be protocolized, that should be a core measure, checklist medicine can save lives, because the IDSA made the good point that time zero as it currently stands is extremely confusing and also very tedious to input all of those measures and see if you met the measure or not. So SIDP said, you know what, if we take sepsis out of the measure, severe sepsis out of the measure, septic shock only as a protocolized core measure, then you can say time zero is the initiation of vasopressors, which may have some imperfections too. There's never going to be a perfect answer to this, but that seems pretty objective that we can all go on. So that was SIDP's recommendation for time zero. The other thing SIDP recommended that I really liked was that they said we should give the gram negative agent first. So if you're giving bank cefepime for a patient with septic shock, you should start the cefepime first and that that could possibly be added to the metric, which I think is, is a very reasonable consideration. So then the second commentary on the IDSA recommendations were from Dr. Sean Townsend and colleagues. And this reply was published in CID and it was titled CMS Measure Stewards Assessment of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Position Paper on SEP1. So this is the CMS response to saying we should update the measure. And his points basically went through the background of the measure. So he said SEP1 was launched in 2015 because at that time hospitalizations for sepsis had doubled in the preceding decade and patients with sepsis account for more than 50% of all hospitalized deaths. So we all agree this is absolutely a priority for patient care. He also said, you know what, CMS absolutely supports antimicrobial stewardship. In fact, in 2019, CMS approved an antimicrobial stewardship standard that took effect in early 2020. Then he said, we cannot make a change in a quality measure that has demonstrated some benefit. There are data to say the bundle has improved care in certain aspects without compelling 
evidence emerging or clinical circumstances significantly changing, which he says there is not compelling evidence to show that SEP1 has increased inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. In fact, he, he says, quote, we have not met the burden of proof, end quote, to establish that SEP1 has increased unnecessary antibiotic usage and delayed antibiotic administration strategies for patients with sepsis hasn't been proven safe. So he's like, you can't wait on this. And he did quote this 2003 paper that said a third of hospital antibiotic prescription involved some kind of prescribing problem. So either the antibiotic wasn't needed or it was given for too long. And so he said, you know, antibiotic prescribing was this huge issue, which we knew in the early 2000s. And that's why in the early 2010s into 2014, 2015, that's when we started to see this huge government response to antimicrobial stewardship. He said, you'd have to prove that step one made inappropriate antibiotic prescribing even worse in order to change the measure. So he advocated to keep severe sepsis in the measure, but then he went on to say that the national compliance with step one is 59%. And he used this as the counter argument to the IDSA saying, look what happened when we tried to protocolize antibiotics for pneumonia that ended quite poorly and clinicians weren't allowed to make their own decisions and use their own gestalt to prescribe antibiotics. And that led to badness. And he said, well, First, we have data to prove that the pneumonia metric caused harm, and so that's why the pneumonia metric was, in fact, removed. So his argument is there's no data to show SEP1 is causing harm definitively. And then he said, you know, compliance to SEP1 is 59% nationally, so physicians have learned to calibrate their fear of blame or non-adherence to the metrics with what they think is the best decision for the patient. And so I actually kind of think we're all making the same case is that Time to antibiotics is extremely important in patients with infections, but perhaps it's not metric worthy because it's extremely hard to protocolize this and adherence is quite poor anyway. Dr. Townsend does not comment on the complexity of time zero or the suggestions to change time zero. He doesn't comment on the removal of the lactates and he does not comment on decreasing the window for septic shock from three hours to one hour. Yeah, I'll say for the listeners, if you haven't read the, the CMS reply here, there's some very pointed statements that are made in this reply. And you can kind of see this back and forth between IDSA and CMS and, and the sepsis people kind of playing out in almost like it has this appeal of, of reality TV because you see these real life scenarios unfolding in front of you. So it makes for a good read, and I'd encourage our, our listeners to, to go take a look. It probably uh, is only a second to a Vanco AUC dosing pro-con discussion, right? Yes, you could see these things coming in our future. I see gloves come uh, and, off and ID people get fired up. Let's talk about Vanco. <laughs> Vanco and sepsis, and maybe they could talk about using Vanco for sepsis, and we'll really have some fun. Oh, wow. Look what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> Clever, I know. <laughs> Not, not only can I fix fans in my office with paper clips, but now I've got all these clever puns working for me. Clinical controversy really inception. <laughs> Let's talk about another controversy. Let's do that. And hey, how about some polymixing guidelines and breakpoints for a controversial top? So the CLSI has updated their polymixing breakpoints, and this also manifested in some discussion and back and forth. And before we talk about the revised polymyxin and colistin breakpoints, I have to get something off my chest. And that is, if you are still using polymyxin B and or colistin to treat carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae or pseudomonas, I encourage you to look at your hospital practices and find better alternatives. There are better alternatives, and really, we should not be using these drugs, really, unless we have no other options. 
And there's some important considerations then for people who may not have other options that include hospitals that are seeing metallobetalactamase producing bacteria for which there are limited options, although we could probably argue about a beta-lactam combination approach that might be even better. I think you'll hear some of that in episode two. But also if you're seeing a lot of carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter, polymyxins or colistins still may be part of your mainstay regimen there. And then certainly we have to acknowledge that some hospitals and some countries don't yet have access to the new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, whether it be ceftazidine-mavibactam, ceftolazane-tazobactam, or meropenem-baberbactam, among many others. So we have to acknowledge that polymyxins are still being used. And if they are being used, then it's important to have clinical breakpoints that help inform use of these agents. So let me set some context here. And I think really one of the major motives for revising the CLSI breakpoints for polymyxins is predicated on the fact that the international polymyxin guidelines have been published. This really helps define a lot of the PKPD principles for polymyxins. It shows where the drugs can potentially be used, where they're toxic, and what the clinical data show. So really, these updates to the CLSI breakpoints would not be possible without the polymyxin guidelines. And I think it's important to acknowledge Dr. Brian Suji and Jason Pogue, among many other colleagues that contributed to those polymyxin guidelines. So let's get into some of the issues with the CLSI uh, breakpoints specifically, and let me briefly kind of summarize where we're at as a field with these. Initially, the CLSI set breakpoints for polymyxins and colistin in 2013, suggesting that for Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter, an MIC of less than or equal to two micrograms per milliliter would be considered susceptible. And at that point, they did not establish a breakpoint for Enterobacteriaceae given the paucity of data. Fast forward now seven years later, we have some more information. And we have more information that further highlights the nuances of using this class of antimicrobials. And let me briefly summarize three more important points that you'll hear about in these discussions. Number one is if you look at the PKPD data and from which we derive exposure response relationships, what we see in mice is that the exposure you need to manifest in a one to two log kill in a neutropenic mouse correlates to a steady state serum concentration in patients of about two micrograms per milliliter. Well, as it turns out that that's also the threshold in which we start to see more toxicity with the polymyxins. And once you start exceeding that steady state concentration of two micrograms per milliliter, the rates of nephrotoxicity go up. So we have now a scenario in which we have this ultra thin therapeutic window in which the concentration you need to derive some efficacy is also correlated with the concentration that predicts toxicity. So that makes using these drugs extremely difficult. There's another little dirty secret if you look into the PKPD literature and in specifically in these mouse studies. And if you're listening and have done some of these mouse studies yourself, you'll know this. But the reality is you can't use polymyxins to treat pneumonia in a mouse. Whether it's acinetobacter or Klebsiella, you can't give enough of these drugs to actually cure pneumonia and get a clinical response in a mouse. And I think that should be a good warning sign for us in treating patients with pneumonia in our hospital trying to use these drugs. The fact of the matter is you just don't get enough of the polymyxins into the lungs to be efficacious. The second important point is measurement of drug susceptibility with MIC testing. The reality is if you look at the epidemiological cutoff values, they also sit right at this magical number of two micrograms per ml. Specifically, the ECV for Enterobacteriaceae is two, and it's even higher, four, for Pseudomonas. So not only is your wild-type distribution getting cut off right at this breakpoint, which may help for setting breakpoints, 
but it also means that you have to hit those exposures to cover the wild type population. This underscores a really important point with colistin is susceptibility testing in general is a complete morass. Depending on how you measure that number or an MIC, it may not mean anything. We know that this drug does not diffuse well into auger, so e-test or disdiffusion methods are not accurate. Automated susceptibility testing tends to miss a lot of resistance. So really the only way you can accurately measure colistin susceptibility testing is by broth microdilution or macrodilution. And that of course we know is just not practical for clinical microlabs. This is what we do here at our hospital, Aaron, and we know every time we have a technician in the lab doing a colistin test, they put up this big pink sign do not disturb. There's real science going on in the lab today, which goes to show you how hard it is to actually measure colistin susceptibility in clinical practice. So number three is that the clinical data are crap. In fact, if you look in the literature and try to find colistin dosing that's been linked to a successful clinical outcome, you won't really find it. And in fact, we know most of the literature suggests that outcomes are poor. And this has really been underscored lately when we've seen many of the new agents compared to colistin. We know that all, every new agent that's tried to compare itself to colistin has shown, in fact, that it's more efficacious and certainly safer. So the clinical data really don't support a hard and fast breakpoint. So now fast forward to the CLSI position on the breakpoints, which is published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in February of this year. And really what the CLSI underscores in the kind of this editorial commentary piece is that they had three goals in reevaluating the polymyxin breakpoints at this point. Number one was to drive education regarding the risks and limitations of polymyxin use. Number two was to establish an evidence-based MIC cutoff that really well defines polymyxin resistance. And number three, and perhaps most importantly, where many of the controversy surrounds, is that they did not publish a susceptible breakpoint. In fact, they only publish an intermediate or resistant breakpoint, which underscores the fact that in the CLSI's opinion, no MIC is associated with a high probability of treatment success, and therefore they did not define a susceptibility breakpoint. So there's some important caveats then in reporting colistin MIC results, and that the CLSI suggests not only will we not endorse a susceptible breakpoint, but when you release results to clinicians, there needs to be some accompanying warning statements. Those warning statements include that the PKPD data do not suggest that there will be high rates of clinical efficacy and there is substantial risk of nephrotoxicity. When possible, pick a non-polymyxin alternative for your patient. And if you're forced to use polymyxin, use it in combination with another active antimicrobial. If you're also using colistin, it should be given with a loading dose at the maximum tolerated dose. And then noting that intravenous polymyxin B and colistin are unlikely to be effective for the treatment of pneumonia. And therefore, a related point is that the breakpoints that are set by the CLSI do not apply to inhaled formulations of colistin or polymyxin B. So I think these are a lot of nuances to consider for colistin susceptibility test from CLSI. On balance, UCAST has said, well, we're still setting a breakpoint because it's really not up to us as a microbiology society to decide when and how an agent should be used. Our job is to set a breakpoint. And so what UCAST has used as their rationale is they've really leveraged significantly on these epidemiological curves using the epidemiological cutoff values to set their breakpoint at two micrograms per ml is susceptible. Anything greater than two is non-susceptible. Enter in the third party here, and that's the US cast. And basically the US cast agrees with all the limitations of the PKPD data. They also agree that maybe the epidemiological cutoff values aren't the best surrogate for a clinical breakpoint, and that the clinical data really don't support a clinical breakpoint whatsoever. 
All that being said, though, is clinicians still might have to use these drugs, and providing some breakpoint is perhaps better than not providing a useful breakpoint at all. So the U.S. CAS said that basically we agree that the breakpoint should be two micrograms per ml, and it should not be set for respiratory isolates whatsoever. But for bloodstream or other isolates, you can define less than or equal to two as susceptible for Acinetobacter, Enterobacteriaceae, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So we've got three different bodies. The vote is split two to one here, two in favor of a susceptible breakpoint, one not in favor. Who's got it right, Aaron? You ask the easy questions, Ryan. I think UCAST and USCAST, I would agree with more here. So another kind of important nuance that I don't think you mentioned is that UCAST, European CAST, recently changed I, meaning intermediate, to mean susceptible increased exposure. And I actually love that. I actually really like that. And I think it makes a lot of sense because it encourages people to not completely discount drugs that are intermediate and instead says the whole point of this is if you can give higher doses safely, then you can treat more resistant organisms with these drugs and not have to revert to using the polymyxins or whatnot. So I like the new UCAST eye. And so this concept certainly doesn't fit with their susceptible increased exposure because you can't give more polymyxins to treat higher MICs. That's just not a thing. Can't do that safely. And so I also agree the drugs have a role and there we still need to use them for certain patients, especially multidrug resistant acinetobacter. And so I don't think you can just say there's no breakpoint because we do use these drugs and you have to give some sense of when it may work and when it, it won't work. I agree with UCAST and the less than or equal to two again, and I agree, definitely agree with them with the no respiratory breakpoints. And so they did not set a breakpoint for pneumonia because as you mentioned, the drugs don't work for pneumonia. And so I agree with not setting a respiratory breakpoint. I like that US CAS did that. I think that's the first time we've seen something like that, but we'll set the standard for drugs in the future because that's that's very important. The CLSI definition of intermediate is as follows. So it basically says that you, with usually attainable blood and tissue levels, the intermediate category applies clinical efficacy, especially in anatomical sites where drugs are physiologically concentrated or when a higher than normal dose can be used. And then the second part of the definition is that response rates may be lower than for susceptible isolates. And so, I don't know, by making everything I under the CLSI definition of I, they focus on the fact that there's lower response rates, but they kind of ignore the whole clinical efficacy at higher concentrations and polymyxins, what, where do they even concentrate kind of thing other than colistin in the urine maybe. And so they're trying to use the breakpoint to discourage clinicians from using polymyxins. And I just don't think you can do that and I certainly don't think you can do that unless we address how all of the other breakpoints for some of our historical drugs may in fact need updated if that is the case. Yeah, that's a, that's a great transition to another editorial put out by US Cast, led by Paul Ambrose and colleagues. And, and really, they make some very important points in this editorial, which was uh, published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases of this year is that these misaligned breakpoints really have powerful and far-reaching implications for patient care. We know as clinicians how often we rely on breakpoints and MIC interpretations to treat patients. And if you get the MIC wrong, or the breakpoint wrong, it has very important implications. And I think an important point that USCAS is trying to make here is we have two different sets of standards. 
what we used to do and now what we're doing now for the new agents. And so many of our old analyses that set breakpoints initially for many of our older beta-lactams, as well as maybe the older aminoglycosides, is they really relied on very rudimentary PKPD analyses and they pooled organisms with MIC distributions all into one pool to kind of draw a line and say, this is your susceptible breakpoint. So the way we evaluated breakpoints before has completely changed into the way we evaluate breakpoints now. And there's some good examples in this paper from Paul Ambrose, but one of which is if you look at amicacin and plasomycin, which have almost identical and very similar AUC to MIC targets, where the breakpoint is set for amicacin, you actually can't achieve your therapeutic target as compared to plasomycin, where it was set with more contemporary analyses. And these have very important implications. And if you think about a drug like plasomycin, is if we defined aminoglycoside resistance to the older aminoglycosides based on contemporary PKPD analyses and the right breakpoints, you would see a much higher rate of aminoglycoside resistance. And it may have had a very important role and further promoting plasomycin as a better aminoglycoside with improved PKPD with lower MICs. But that didn't happen. And of course, we know the fate of plasomycin now. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, plasomycin is a better aminoglycoside than the other ones. I'm just going to say it. That's just a fact. And it did not get fairly brought to the market because the old aminoglycoside breakpoints are wrong. They're way too high. And I think this paper is awesome in pointing that out. And so I don't think you mentioned, but this paper is actually called Old in vitro breakpoints are misleading stewardship efforts, delaying adoption of innovative therapies and harming patients by Paul Ambrose and OFID. And like, what a title, honestly, but it's true. It's true. And, and these organizations, they have such an important job to set these breakpoints because once something is read in a culture and susceptibility report in a patient's chart, it is almost impossible for us as clinicians to convince people to use that drug anyway, or to not use that drug if it says S and it's black in the chart, but we know that that's actually resistant because the breakpoint's actually too high. So it is so, so important to quote, get these right. I think all three organizations are doing a tremendous job. This is not an easy effort. And again, just to review for our, our listeners, those three papers that came out this year are Satlin and colleagues and CID talking about the CLSI and the UCAS standpoint, Hogan colleagues and AAC talking about US CAS standpoint, and then Ambrose and colleagues in OFID commenting on the need to get these breakpoints right. And a good example, honestly, clinically, where we see this a lot is ceftolazane tazobactam. If you look at the CLSI M100, the ceftolazane tazobactam breakpoint is set at the 1.5 gram every eight hour dose. And we now give three grams almost always when we're using ceftolazane tazobactam and the three gram dose has been FDA approved, but the breakpoint setting lags behind and then the updating your automated panels so that your culture reports and your patient's chart lag behind that even further. And so I'm looking at a breakpoint of four for Pseudomonas and it's saying susceptible and then eight is intermediate, but I'm giving double the dose. And so if I have a isolate that's pan resistant, a ceftolazine MIC of eight, and my options are give a ton of ceftolazine versus colistin, I mean, I'm going to give that patient probably a nine gram continuous infusion of ceftolazine tazobactam. That's hard to kind of talk, you know, your attendings into that kind of mentality. So just a lot of really interesting commentary on breakpoints from 2020 publications. Yeah, so I think certainly as a field, we're moving in the right direction, but you can see even with some of the new agents, the breakpoints could be misleading. So our advice to clinicians listening to this podcast is understand these nuances, know what your drug exposure targets are, and interpret the breakpoints accordingly. But Aaron, we better move on and get into some other 
highly impactful clinical studies that were published in 2020. Yeah, I'm really super excited to talk about this next paper because our faithful breakpoints listeners know CMV is my favorite infection. And this is a randomized clinical trial evaluating CMV prophylaxis. And so this was by Dr. Nina. Actually, before I talk about this, random side note, my Twitter banner head picture is actually CMV. It is not COVID, even though it looks like a little virus. It's it's CMV, just so everyone is aware. <laughs> wait, wait, you're on Twitter? What's your handle? I should follow you. It's at Ryan K. Shields. <laughs> All right. So this paper, though, let's get back to it. So Nina Singh and colleagues published in JAMA, April 2020. It is called The Effect of Preemptive Therapy Versus Antiviral Prophylaxis on Cytomegalovirus Disease in seronegative liver transplant recipients with seropositive donors. So these are high-risk mismatch patients. Now, I remember seeing them present these data as an oral abstract at ID Week, and the authors concluded that presentation by saying the guidelines should change to incorporate the results of this trial into practice. And that's just like so impactful and so amazing that when these kinds of things happen, these kinds of landmark trials. And Dr. Singh gave grain rounds at the University of Pittsburgh, and she talked about how she wanted to do this trial over a decade ago and it wasn't funded. And so that's just a good reminder to all of us too, to not really give up on your dreams and keep pursuing things that you think are valuable questions to answer. So in this study of CMV mismatched liver transplant recipients, they randomized patients one-to-one. -one. They stratified by induction therapy and the need for renal replacement therapy at the time of enrollment. Patients were enrolled a median four days after transplant, so pretty early. And they either got universal prophylaxis with valgancyclovir daily for 100 days, which is I think standard practice at most institutions currently or they were randomized to receive preemptive therapy, which meant they got no antiviral drug prophylaxis, but instead they got weekly plasma CMV PCR monitoring and at any detectable value, which the limit of detection was 20, which is very low, but any detectable CMV value in this serial monitoring, they would treat with twice daily valgancyclovir until the patient had two negative tests a week apart. The baseline characteristics were well-matched in this trial, only one patient received cyclosporin, all the others, their primary immunosuppression was tacrolimus. So the primary outcome was incidence of CMV disease by 12 months, which included CMV syndrome or end organ disease. And drum roll on the results. They found that CMV disease was significantly lower in patients who received preemptive therapy compared to universal prophylaxis. So 9% versus 19%. And interestingly, they found this was primarily from a reduction in delayed onset disease or disease that occurred beyond 100 days. So 6% versus 17%. And so this is super cool because they also looked at immunological endpoints in this. And so those were CMV neutralizing antibodies or T cell responses at day 100 six months, and 12 months. And what they found is that significantly more patients in the preemptive therapy group developed antibodies at day 100. They also saw significantly higher CD4 and CD8 T cell polyfunctional responses for patients receiving preemptive therapy, and CD8 T cell responses were significantly higher in patients who had experienced some degree of preceding viremia. So that's just fascinating with that coupled with the fact that the difference in outcomes was driven by late disease. So when you stop prophylaxis, you all of a sudden get all this disease. The authors do make a caveat that these immune findings were exploratory endpoints. They should not be used to make decisions at this point, rather just hypothesis generating. But I think this is just fascinating data. There was no difference in secondary outcomes like allograft rejection, opportunistic infections, and crazy, no difference in neutropenia, which you know, we, I, that's actually something maybe in favor of Valgan is that we typically are 
would like to not give our patients Valgans like Levir if possible because it is it is quite a toxic drug in terms of neutropenia, which of course can lead to more infections and whatnot. So no difference there. But the preemptive group was exposed to less Valgans like Levir, so they had a median of 57 days of drug exposure versus 97 days. So you're really saving about 40 days worth of drug exposure here, not the full 100 days because they do get treatment if they have a positive PCR, but still that's, that's a lot of drug and it's associated with better outcomes. No difference in mortality, 15 versus 19%. But this is a game changer and this is we're going to move towards this preemptive strategy at UPMC. I think the biggest thing to consider is how to operationalize this. So this the real world is obviously not the clinical trial world and you need to figure out how you're going to follow your patients and ensure they get weekly PCRs for this to be successful because if you don't and they have untreated CMV that just logarithmically increases, that's bad too. So it may be difficult if you have patients that travel very far to your transplant center, but we've done this in the bone marrow transplant space forever, this preemptive monitoring strategy before we had latermavir. So I think this is possible. Centers will just have to think strategically about how to operationalize it. Yeah, I think the, sorry to cut it, cut you off there, Aaron, but I think a couple of the things that really kind of just jump off the page to me in reading this study is first of which is I fully anticipated that you would see less toxicity with the preemptive approach, but that wasn't the case. And I think in clinical practice, we see and manage this neutropenia all the time with, with valcite. So I'm surprised that it wasn't recapitulated in the study. And I think that's something else that people will have to consider is the toxicity they see at their center and how these data apply to them. And maybe it's another reason to go with a preemptive approach. And I think the other thing that many transplant coordinators will recognize is valcite's also very expensive and patients can't afford it. This is a big issue on an outpatient basis is getting these patients compliant with their medications that are expensive. So I think there's even more reason to look at this preemptive approach and these data really help push us in that direction. But one of the questions I'm wondering is, well, what are we going to do with other solid organ transplants? May a similar approach apply? Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan. And the authors do point out these data are not applicable to other organs. So this is just for livers for now. The other good point about valcite is that in a randomized trial, these patients had follow-ups and labs and their doses were getting appropriately adjusted. But in the real world, we often see failure to appropriately renal dose adjust valgans like Levere post-transplant. So that significantly impacts outcomes as well. And then just a last caveat about this study, and then I'm going to transition into another one, is that we put a lot of stock into statistical significance. It's how we live and die in science. Like, is it significant or not? Because this is game-changing data, but the author state, you know, the observed difference in CMV disease rate between the two groups was actually less than they had predicted. And they said if one additional CMV disease event in the preemptive group had occurred, and one less event had occurred in the prophylaxis group, then the pre-specified threshold for statistical difference would not have been met. So just one patient either way on both sides. So, I mean, I still think it's compelling data. We're still moving forward with changing, but just something to think about when we, you know, say things are statistically significant. Another neat transplant paper that was published this year came out in January 2020 in CID, Van Delden and colleagues, who titled this paper, The Burden and Timeline of Infectious Diseases in the First Year after solid organ transplantation in the Swiss transplant cohort study. Now, I think this paper is just cool at baseline because it's an entire national cohort of all these patients. So everyone that gets a transplant in Switzerland goes into this cohort database and they can evaluate their outcomes on a national level. And I think we all agree that a universal EHR would just be the dream. So they had 2,761 patients and they wanted to look at a primary outcome of occurrence of clinically relevant infections within 12 months post-transplant. And the reason for this was really because 
In the transplant infectious diseases space, there was a landmark paper in 1998 in the New England Journal of Medicine by Jay Fishman, and he published the original transplant infectious diseases timeline that showed in the course of time after transplant, when should we see certain opportunistic fungal, bacterial, and viral infections? He's updated this paper several times. The most recent version was in the American Journal of Transplantation in 2017. The Swiss wanted to find, you know, is this true in our patients? And it's super interesting because what they found was that infections were actually quite frequent and that bacterial infections predominated. And, you know, traditionally we've thought of infections being highest in the first month post-transplant. And they found that that's generally true. The highest density of infection in their population was indeed within 50 days post-transplant. But they said, you know what? 60% of patients had a bacterial infection throughout the year. 18% of patients had a bacteremia episode and 22% of those episodes actually occurred in months six through 12. And so they said, you know what? What we've really found is that many aspects of the Fishman timeline hold true. First month is the highest burden, but don't sleep on bacterial infections. They do indeed occur at high rates throughout the year. And then interestingly, they found, you know what? In, a, in an era of great prophylaxis strategies, we've come a really long way and opportunistic infections are extremely rare, quite low, but that they do occur all throughout the year and perhaps even have been shifted to later timeframes, which they kind of called to this, which we saw in the CMV literature too, that infection timelines vary by organ um, and they're unique to patients and that maybe we need to think about when to stop prophylaxis specific to the patient and not just on this kind of set standard timeframe. Yeah, interesting observational data there, Aaron. And I think Switzerland's really doing a couple of things really, really well. First of which is these universal databases where you can capture data like this. But the second is typically we don't see a lot of drug resistance in Switzerland. Certainly we know the rates of MRSA are very low, the rates of CRE are low, but what's notable in this study is they actually did find a 15% ESBL rate, which is a good reminder that you can find these resistant organisms among immunosuppressed patient populations that are exposed to healthcare and get lots of antimicrobial exposures as well. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of resistance, there's other, another yeah. cool trial in the, that was the worst transition ever. This is yeah, the just keep inhaled amici. All right, now we have to cut some of this because- no, I'm um, leaving it in. Our listeners need to know this is how this goes. Yeah, so they're going to be like, why, why am I getting an hour BCDIDB credit for like this hour and 30 minute podcast? Now they, now they know. To listen to Aaron and Ryan not know how to transition <laughs> from solid organ transplant to the inhale. So can you talk to me about the inhale trial? Yes. So the inhaled trial is an inhaled amicacin adjunct to intravenous standard of care antibiotics in mechanically ventilated patients with gram-negative pneumonia. This was published in Lancet Infectious Diseases in March 2020, and this is really a very nicely done study. This is a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, phase three superiority study. And I think that superiority comment is very important because the entire purpose of this study is not to show that inhaled antibiotics were non-inferior, but to show that they were superior. They made an improvement in patient mortality, and specifically, they set their margin for superiority of a 10% survival advantage by adding inhaled antibiotics in patients with gram-negative bacterial pneumonia. So this is a very large study. It is uh, predicated on this idea that you can give inhaled amicacin and reach therapeutic concentrations in the epithelial lining fluid, and that as an adjunct to standard of care, it may have benefit for patients. So the study design in this randomized controlled trial is pretty straightforward. You have standard of care antibiotics for everybody in the trial with hospital or ventilator associated pneumonia for at least 10 days. And then in one arm, they gave placebo. 
The other arm they give inhaled amikacin. This was a very large study done in 25 different countries at 153 hospitals. And importantly, the study investigators tried to enrich their patient sample for patients that might have multidrug resistant gram negative pneumonia. And specifically, they identified risk factors for multidrug resistance as prior antibiotics, prior hospitalization prior MDR infection, all of the things that we've become accustomed to know. The primary outcome of the study was survival at the long-term follow-up visit, which was between 28 and 32 days from the time of enrollment. Importantly, they had a number of clinically relevant secondary endpoints, most notably, in my opinion, early clinical response at days 3, 5, and 10, as measured by changes in, in CPIS score. They also looked for the safety of delivering inhaled amikacin. Was this safe to patients? Did they have more bronchospasm? This was included in their secondary endpoints. Now, one practical thing about this study I want to point out is that every patient that received inhaled amikacin or placebo received it through an integrated drug delivery device known as amikacin inhaled device. This is manufactured by a company in Germany. Importantly, this delivers synchronous doses of amikacin in the same way to every single patient. Most of these patients were ventilated, so it was very easy to deliver the drug. Among patients that were not ventilated or came off the ventilator during the study, they received the drug under direct supervision. So we don't have to worry about the delivery of the drug here, and really we can just focus on the clinical outcomes. 725 patients were enrolled into the study, about 360 in each arm, but I'm just going to focus, Aaron, on the patients specifically in the efficacy population, which included 255 patients in the amikacin arm and 253 patients in the placebo arm. These are all patients that had microbiologically confirmed gram-negative pneumonia. Not surprisingly, these patients were very sick, median Apache 2 scores of around 20. 47% of patients had ventilator-associated pneumonia. 29% of patients had hospital-acquired pneumonia. And the most common pathogens were Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, Klebsiella pneumonia, and E. coli. And those four gram-negative pathogens cumulatively accounted for more than 90% of all the microbiology identified in this study. About half of all of those isolates were defined as multidrug resistance, so showing that stratifying by risk factors for resistance worked here. They got lots of patients with resistant bugs into the study. The main outcomes, if you're reading this study, can be derived from table two, and they can be summarized very simply. They found absolutely no difference in clinical outcomes if you give inhaled amikacin compared to placebo. There was no difference in mortality, no difference in early clinical responses, and the drug was overall well tolerated. And importantly, they looked very hard to find clinical differences. This study was sponsored by the, the manufacturer of the drug delivery device. You know they have every incentive in the world to find a benefit of giving inhaled amikacin in this context, and really they found none. And this was true for patients with resistant organisms and patients with susceptible organisms. So I think this is a really important study for what we see in clinical practice. I was actually just talking to an attending here at our hospital this week who is considering adding an inhaled aminoglycoside to somebody with Pseudomonas VAP. And my suggestion to him was don't do it. I don't think that there's a clinical benefit in, in doing that. Now, we have to be careful with a study like this. is is a very well-designed study. It shows no benefit for a specific patient population, but we have to be careful not to extrapolate these findings to other patient populations. And some of those populations that might still have benefit from inhaled antibiotics might be your patients with, let's say, bronchiectasis or cystic fibrosis, where inhaled antibiotics are used more to suppress bacterial populations in the lungs and suppress exacerbations, for instance. These data don't support a role for inhaled antibiotics in that context, but what they do show us is that for patients with acute bacterial pneumonia, 
probably no benefit of adding an inhaled aminoglycoside. Thanks, Ryan. That was an excellent summary of that trial. I think I love the superiority design because if I'm going to add a drug to my patient, I want to show that it's going to be better, not just non-inferior to one drug. That doesn't make any sense. So solid trial design, really important data because we do get asked this question a lot. And another interesting nuance is that they did look at rates of microbiological eradication by organism, and they found no difference in patients who received inhaled versus not in any pathogen except for pseudomonas. So in pseudomonas, patients that got inhaled amikacin actually did have higher rates of eradication, but then there was still no difference in specific outcomes. And so I think this just really helps us say that no need to add inhaled aminoglycosides. The final thing to note from this study, Erin, is that the safety endpoints, although there was no difference in bronchospasm or some of the observational differences between placebo and inhaled amikacin, for the patients that did receive inhaled amikacin, there were detectable serum levels. In fact, the peak level was around two micrograms per ml in the serum for these patients, which didn't go up over time, but suggests that you did get systemic exposures with the inhaled delivery. And this is a good reminder that there could be other toxicities, including nephrotoxicity for giving patients inhaled antibiotics. We've certainly seen this in our observational experience here at UPMC. Yeah, Ryan, incredibly important point. We had a really strong PGY1 pharmacy resident look at our inhaled aminoglycosides last year, and we found this. We found detectable aminoglycoside levels in, in several patients that resulted in AKI. So they're not without harm, and, and they don't help, so don't give them. All right, one last randomized controlled trial I want to talk about from the first half of 2020 that you may have missed. And this came out in JAMA in June, and it's called the Effect of C-Reactive Protein-Guided Antibiotic Treatment Duration, 7-Day Treatment, or 14-Day Treatment on 30-Day Clinical Failure Rates in Patients with Uncomplicated Gram-Negative Bacteremia. Now, this was a non-inferiority trial of adult patients in Switzerland, again, who were randomized on day 5 of active therapy for Enterobacteriaceae bloodstream infections to receive either CRP-guided therapy, which was give antibiotics until the CRP has declined by 75% from the peak value, or they got a fixed seven days or a fixed 14 days. And now, why did they do this? Why study this? Well, infectious diseases should be the bug, the drug, and the host. And fixed durations do not take into account the host characteristics or treatment response. And so they're trying to individualize durations of therapy via a biomarker-assisted guidance, which is awesome. This is an important hypothesis to study, and I think it could make a huge difference. So I, I think it's very interesting that they studied this. Now, CRP levels were drawn at least every two days, but they were drawn per local practice, and so it wasn't strictly protocolized, which we'll come back to at the end. If the 75% reduction was not achieved by day 14, then they no longer use CRP to guide the duration of therapy or the end date. Patients had to be afebrile for 24 hours and have no evidence of any complication like an abscess or something like that, and they couldn't be severely immunosuppressed. So if they met none of those exclusion, then they were randomized on day five. The primary outcome was clinical failure at day 30, and antibiotic durations in the CRP group were also secondarily analyzed by renal function since CRP is eliminated renally. They randomized 504 patients, 70% of them had a urinary source, so these are the uncomplicated enterobacteriaceae bacteremias we think about. 2.4% of patients in the CRP group, 6.6% in the seven-day group, and 5.5% in the 14-day group experienced clinical failure at 30 days, so the primary outcome. The median duration of therapy in the CRP group was seven days, and it ranged from five to 28 days. So what they found was CRP-guided therapy and seven days of therapy were not inferior to 14 days of therapy, but they did say the sample size was calculated based on a failure rate between 10 and 30%, and they also observed quite a large margin of non-inferiority. They had a low observed event rate, 
and they had relatively low adherence in the CRP group. And so I'll explain that what they essentially found were logistical difficulties in getting these serial CRPs, like patients declining labs or lost samples, which we know we run into all the time with studies we try to do here. That's, it's kind of a more of a pragmatic trial, really, because that's, that's what happens. But that led to 21% treatment-related per-protocol violations in the CRP study group. However, they did try to adjust for this. They did a worst-case scenario analysis and a best-case scenario analysis. And no matter what, this non-inferiority held true. So caveats aside, I think this is the second major RCT. So of course, y'all have been colleagues from last year that we talked about in our ECMID podcast. Seven days of therapy for uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia seems to be the, the thing. I have no problem recommending this in my clinical practice now. I think we now have two RCTs to support this. The jury's probably out on CRP-guided therapy. We probably need more data in this space. And they didn't do a cost-effectiveness analysis. So the value and the efficiency of all these additional labs, is it worth it? I don't know. I probably at this point would say no. Just give seven days, especially since the median duration of therapy in the CRP group was seven days. And then, of course, the last important caveat is that antibiotic duration, though, should always be determined by the patient's response to illness. If at day seven your patient is not well, then they cannot get seven days. And we see that in these trials. Remember, these patients are only getting enrolled if at a certain time point they have clinically stabilized, et cetera. Yeah, I think these are important points, Aaron, is first of all, at your center, identify these patients that can get treated with short courses for pneumonia, bacteremia. The data are just compiling more and more. So I think we have every reason now as clinical pharmacists to be advocating for these practices. And I think the important parts of this study is you may not need additional laboratory tests to identify these patients that can benefit from short course. You can probably figure out who has uncomplicated bacteremia and recommend that more broadly, as you suggested. Yeah, I think the RCTs are mostly in enterobacteriaceae, so we'll still need to get more data in the non-fermenter space. I think there's some retrospective observational data that's very good, showing that this likely holds true for non-fermenters as well. Just because something is multi-drug resistant doesn't necessarily mean it needs longer durations of therapy, but those will be additional areas to explore for non-fermenters. Speaking of fermentation, Aaron, let's talk about fermentation in beer. Such a, a clever play on words we had there. But there was an article published this year that caught my attention. It's called Fact Versus Fiction, a review of the evidence behind alcohol and antibiotic interactions. This is published by Carrie Mergenhagen, an SIDP member and her colleagues. And certainly we know that alcohol and antibiotic interactions are something that's out there. Patients ask them, our family members ask about them. And judging by some of the high attendance rates at our SIDP receptions, this is a shared passion that we have with our colleagues and antibiotics. So let's talk a bit about this. And I think one of the first thing that strikes me about this review is that it has major outpatient implication. That we know people are going to ask about this. And if you look at the warning labels that are printed from some of the major retail chains, whether it be Walgreens, Rite Aid, or CVS, the warnings for alcohol interactions vary between all of these chains. And this is really important because patients are getting misinformation or perhaps misled depending on where they're getting their antibiotics filled. So this review by Carrie and colleagues includes 72 articles of the best of the best literature that's available, which let's be honest, is not all that great. It's mostly observational, very small sample sizes, and in some cases, single anecdotal case reports. So there's three predominant interactions that we need to be aware of and informed on. And those are number one, the changes to the pharmacokinetics of antibiotics based on alcohol interactions. Number two, in line with number one, could you see decreases in antibiotic efficacy because of these changes in pharmacokinetics? And then number three, is there increased toxicity? And in particular, we've all heard of these disulfiram reactions. Will there be an increased risk for patients? 
So in this article, table two is really the headliner. And if you're going to cut one out and tape it up next to your computer at your desk, this is the table to do so with. And in short, let me just summarize kind of some of the headliners here. Number one, what we know from Carrie's review is that penicillins and fluoroquinolones are largely very safe. These are commonly used in the outpatient setting. And I think we can encourage safe consumption of alcohol and antibiotics with these classes. Cephalosporins, on the other hand, we really have to be careful here because we know that there have been reported cases of disulfiram reactions with cephalosporins. And these are mostly based on cephalosporins that harbor an MTT side chain, which is the methylthiotetraazole substitution, which we know resembles the disulfiram molecule itself. And specifically, cefotitan, cefperazone, cefametadol, and cefmetazole are the cephalosporins that have this MTT side chain. And those are the ones really that we want to avoid alcohol consumption if patients are on those antibiotics intravenously. The other important cephalosporin that's used perhaps more commonly than those that I just mentioned is ceftriaxone. Importantly, ceftriaxone possesses the methyl iodioxtriazine or MTDT ring instead of the MTT side chain. There's also been cases of disulfiram reactions reported with ceftriaxone, so this is the one to warn your patients about. But all the other cephalosporins that don't harbor these side chains can be safely co-administered with alcohol if you choose to do so. The next antibiotic I want to comment on is metronidazole. Of course, we are aware of this interaction from pharmacy school, and if you've worked in outpatient settings, this is a drug that we get asked about a lot. There are early evidence and reports of metronidazole and alcohol causing this disulfiram type of reaction going all the way back to 1964, but many of these reports have been refuted by more contemporary studies. And I think Carrie does a nice job in summarizing this discordance in the literature. And specifically, she points out a, a double-blind placebo-controlled study in 12 humans that were given oral metronidazole three times a day, or patients that received placebo five days prior to receipt of alcohol, and they found absolutely no difference in disulfiram reactions or increases in alcohol dehydrogenase levels between the two groups, suggesting that many of these interactions may perhaps be overblown, but the data are indeed controversial. The final drug class I'll talk about is the oxalidazones. We have two drugs in this class, linazolid and tadazolid, and we know that these are weak, nonspecific inhibitors of monoamine oxidase. And there's been a concern then for patients with high blood pressure, maybe having diets that are high in tyramine, that these interactions cumulatively could cause an increase in blood pressure. And the literature out there su suggests that really you start to see an increase in systolic blood pressure when patients are on these monoamine oxidase inhibitors like linazolid or tadazolid and are drinking alcohol high in tyramine, where you start to see an increase in systolic blood pressure, but not until you hit this threshold of 100 milligrams of tyramine. And to put that into perspective, one 12-ounce tap beer contains 38 milligrams of tyramine, but really for pasteurized beverage carefully and just be aware of these interactions, specifically for patients that already have high baseline blood pressure, these are really the patients you should be warning them about. For everyone else, drink responsibly. Yeah, important counseling points, Ryan. I remember in pharmacy school being taught about this and just thinking about beer and cheese. And uh, I've definitely printed out table two, and I have it taped next to the list of breweries in Pittsburgh by my, by my desk. So uh, great publication. And I think that wraps up our episode one. So we hope you guys have enjoyed listening to top papers in the infectious diseases space from early 2020. Join us next week for episode two, where we're going to go through even more papers from this time that you may have missed. And with that, I'm Erin McCreary, joined by my fabulous co-host, Ryan Shields. You are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks.